Hello everybody, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. So, on Monday, Pope Francis returned from an historic, and by all accounts, at least in the immediate wake of the event, wildly successful trip to Iraq. Tomorrow, on Saturday, Pope Francis will mark his eight-year anniversary on the throne of Peter. That is the eight-year anniversary of his election as the successor to Pope Benedict XVI. Today's show oscillates between those two poles, the immediate, the trip to Iraq, and the permanent, Francis's legacy at the eight-year mark. That's what we've got for you, so please stick around. Okay, so we begin with Pope Francis's March 5th to the 8th trip to Iraq. This trip was singular. Uh, historic, uh, remarkable, uh, I, I would use the term jaw-dropping, uh, on multiple levels. Let us begin with the mere fact that it happened at all. As we have talked about on this program, the odds against this trip happening were staggeringly high. I mean, I'll let you in on a dirty little trade secret. When the dates for this trip were announced a few months ago here in Rome, there was a betting pool among Vatican journalists about whether this trip would actually happen. The odds never got higher than 50%. Okay, that's how improbable this seemed at the beginning. I mean, think about it. First of all, uh, it is a trip occurring in the middle of a global pandemic. And yes, there are vaccines. Yes, there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. But those vaccines, for the most part, have not arrived in Iraq. The country is in the middle of a second massive surge uh, of the infection. Uh, hospitals are overwhelmed. The government has placed stern restrictions on public activities. In the light of all that, it, it just seemed like you know, this was something that, well, it seemed more aspirational on the part of the Pope. When the dates weren't announced, it seemed like this was his way of saying he wanted to go. None of us thought it was actually going to happen, or I should say very few of us. Add to that the security situation. When the dates were announced, things seemed relatively calm by Iraqi standards. Uh, but in the wake of that announcement, there were suicide bombings in a downtown market in Baghdad, there were rocket attacks on the city of Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, both places that Pope Francis has visited. Uh, you know, we all took for granted that that would probably be enough to knock, the, knock this trip out of the box. Add to that the fact the Pope had to cancel several events in the run-up to this trip because he was struggling with sciatica, that painful nerve condition in the back and lower legs that makes it very difficult for him to sit in one position or to stand in one position for very long. Uh, and just the general complexities uh, of organizing a trip like this with relatively little advance notice. Uh, all of that seemed to us to make it, well, to be honest with you, a, a pretty steep hill to climb. Uh, I think the fact that this trip happens, now you can explain it in a lot of different ways. You can explain it by the fact that for most Iraqis, given the existential threats that they face every day, the fact that many Iraqis literally take their lives in their hands when they send their kids to school, when they go to the market, when they go to work, the fact that Iraqis, many of them, are desperately poor, uh, the fact that they live day to day not knowing whether their communities are going to be even standing 
the next day, whether their sources of employment will be there the next day. They live with a sense of abandonment by the entire international community. They live with a sense that they are a plaything for kind of geopolitical chess games being played by the major powers to which they are perennially held hostage. Given all of that, the COVID pandemic is fairly far down the list, honestly, uh, in terms of their driving concerns. And so for them, it was never much of an issue. You could factor that in. Uh, you know, you could factor in uh, the fact that the Iraqi government was absolutely determined to provide the thickest and most impenetrable security possible during the days the Pope was in town. The last thing they wanted was a global humiliation of some sort of threat on the Pope while he was on Iraqi soil. Uh, and so you, you had a sense that the security would be taken care of. You can add in the fact that, look, this is not the Vatican's first radio. They have organized trips on the fly before. Popes have been traveling in, in the modern period since St. Paul VI. Uh, they know what they're doing. Hey, all of that was true. Okay, and, and maybe all of that should have leavened our sense that this trip was unlikely. But I think at the end of the day, what this trip really reflects more than anything else uh, is the willpower uh, of Pope Francis. Pope Francis was simply determined to go. Uh, at one point, he actually jokingly said that if necessary, uh, that is, if the charter flight from Alitalia was unwilling to make the trip, he would fly commercial. Uh, to get to, to Iraq if he had to. Of course, that was never actually under consideration, but it demonstrates the fact that Pope Francis simply, in his heart, in his soul, in his mind, decided this was a trip he had to make. And he said as much during his customary in-flight news conference on the way back from Iraq on Monday morning. Uh, he said, look, you know, people briefed me on, on all of the dangers, on all of the risks. I thought about it. I prayed about it. Uh, in my heart, I had a sense of peace that this was something I had to do. Uh, and so at the end of the day, this is an illustration. This trip, more than any other papal trip I think I've ever witnessed or covered, this papal trip is an indication that in the Catholic system, at the end of the day, it is the Pope and the Pope alone who bears the responsibility for making this kind of decision. In this case, this was not a product of consensus. This was not an obligation that Pope Francis inherited. It was a very personal decision. Now, if you watch what unfolded during that weekend, essentially, that Pope Francis was in Iraq, each day had a highlight. On Friday, Pope Francis met with President Saleh and the other civil authorities of Iraq. And during that, uh, during that moment uh, in which Pope Francis was on stage with the, the power structure uh, of Iraq, he delivered a strong message both to the Iraqis themselves, principally about religious freedom, the respect for tolerance and diversity, uh, and to the international community about the importance of solidarity with Iraq, because Iraq has uh, incalculable geopolitical significance, uh, and the Pope stressed that in that meeting. So that day was about his message to Iraqi society and to the global community. On Saturday, Pope Francis uh, in the morning traveled to Najaf. That is 
one of the holiest sites uh, in Shia Islam, arguably the holiest. Some people would call Najaf the Vatican uh, of Shia Islam. Uh, and Pope Francis went there to meet with the Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, uh, who, by the way, is 90 years old. So Pope Francis at 84 was the junior partner uh, in this conversation. Uh, and the idea, obviously, was to emphasize the importance of interreligious understanding and harmony, particularly between Christianity and Islam. Of course, Pope Francis had already had a landmark meeting uh, with the Grand Imam of Al-Hazhar during his trip to the United Arab Emirates in 2019. That's sort of the Vatican of the Sunni Muslim world. Uh, this meeting with al-Sistani completed his diptych, uh, his outreach to both of the major branches of Islam, Sunni and now Shia. Uh, by all accounts, it was a warm, respectful conversation. <laughs> Sistani actually got up uh, to greet Pope Francis, not once but twice, which is something he almost never does. Sistani al almost never receives global leaders or celebrities Generally, his meetings are with private citizens. So the fact that he was willing to make exceptions for Pope Francis, excuse me, indicates the importance he too uh, attached to this encounter. Then on Sunday, this was Pope Francis's day largely for the Christian community uh, in Iraq. He went to Mosul, a city that had been absolutely devastated under the ISIS occupation of northern Iraq from 2014 to 2017. Then he visited Karakosh, one of the traditionally Christian villages in the Nineveh Plains uh, of Iraq. Uh, while there, he said a mass and met with the Christian community. And it was incredibly important because these are people who were forced from their homes under ISIS, who are now desperately trying to rebuild, this was a badly needed papal shot in the arm. And then uh, he returned to Erbil, where many of those people from those Christian villages had taken refuge and said an open-air mass for what was officially estimated at 10,000 people, more likely somewhere close to 20,000. Uh, an atmosphere of absolutely undiluted joy uh, all along the way. Looking back, you have to say that the Pope struck all the right notes. His, both his verbal messages and his symbolic gestures played extraordinarily well with his hosts. And uh, the trip came off uh, without any security, uh, threats, or glitches. Excuse me. Uh, without any security difficulties along the way. Uh, and so in that sense, both logistically and in terms of content, the trip was evaluated by virtually everyone watching as a raging success. Now, uh, of course, uh, that is the short-run calculation. There are a couple of things we don't yet know. One, what is the political payoff of this trip going to be? That is, Okay, the Pope came. He talked about religious freedom. Uh, he talked about tolerance and diversity. <coughs> he talked about the importance of Iraq's Christian minority. Is that going to result, actually, in greater security, greater, uh, a greater sense of franchise, a greater place at the table for those minorities in Iraqi society? 
We don't know. Uh, also, uh, in terms of the COVID dimension of this, we don't yet have the data on whether the, the gatherings uh, that took place along the way, uh, that is a very packed church in Karakosh, uh, a, a stadium with a large crowd in Erbil, other events, whether those events actually had any impact on furthering transmission of the coronavirus, we won't know that for a while either. And if that turns out to be true, uh, it may cause some people to ask questions ultimately about the wisdom uh, of this trip. But at least in the here and now, I can tell you that virtually everyone observing it, certainly everyone who participated in it, will tell you that Pope Francis's presence in Iraq was a historic turning point for that society. Even President Salih at the end of the trip said, who is a Sunni Muslim, said uh, that Iraq will never be the same because of this trip. Uh, that is, that there is a new sense of a pride uh, in, uh, in the diversity of Iraqi society and in the place that their minorities have uh, in that society, including their Christians. I can also tell you that the most popular tweet in Iraq over the weekend was a tweet from a young Muslim that went viral who, who simply tweeted out watching all this happen, I hope the Pope will come every year. Uh, now, that's deeply unlikely, but it demonstrates the enthusiasm that ordinary Iraqis, including the majority Muslim, had for what they saw uh, doing it during these remarkable four days. Uh, all right, that is the immediate portion of today's show, uh, the Pope's trip to Iraq, kind of our post-game coverage, if you like. Now let's segue to what's coming tomorrow. What's coming tomorrow is the eight-year anniversary uh, of Pope Francis's election to the papacy on March 13th, 2013. I'm sure we all remember February 11th, 2013, Pope Benedict XVI announces that he's resigning. The evening of February 28th, 8 p.m. Rome time, that resignation takes effect. We are in a sede fagante. Then uh, we have the, the gathering of cardinals, we have the conclave, and finally, Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio of Buenos Aires in Argentina emerges as the new pope. Since then, it has been an absolute whirlwind of activity. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it, it, we, it would require far more time than we have for me to run down all of the books that have been written about this pope, the documentaries that have been made the magazine cover stories that have been pinned, the, the, the unforgettable moments uh, that have unfolded. I mean, Pope Francis is kind of the energizer bunny uh, of popes. Uh, on his eight-year anniversary, what can we say in kind of summary form? Well, let's begin with a caveat. Uh, we are not, ladies and gentlemen, at the end of this papacy. Yes, when Pope Francis was elected, he had this kind of throwaway line in which he said he thought his might be a short papacy. But he's now at the eight-year mark. There is no indication uh, that we have entered the end game uh, of this pontificate. Yeah, he's got sciatica. Yeah, if you watched him in Iraq, uh, he was limping uh, a little bit. Occasionally, he seemed a little bit hoarse. But other than that, he seemed completely good to go. Uh, and this is a pope who still believes he has many miles to go before he sleeps. He has a kind of sweeping agenda for a post-coronavirus world that he laid out in his encyclical letter for Tutti, 
<clears throat> no indication that he's ready to hang up his spurs anytime soon uh, or that health uh, might force him to do so. So uh, any sort of uh, obituaries or assessments uh, on this papacy are at this stage wildly premature. But what can we say in the here and now? Well, uh, let me give you two sort of points to chew on uh, as we think about what Pope Francis has meant for the church and the world uh, over these past eight years. First, I think the election of Francis in this papacy marks the moment when the Catholic Church definitively went global. Now, I mean that at the leadership level. At the grassroots, the Catholic Church has been global for quite some time. I mean, look at our numbers. Right now, today, March 2021, more than two-thirds of the global Catholic population of 1.3 billion people lives outside the West. They live in the developing world. They live in Latin America. They live in Africa. They live in Asia. They live in the Pacific Islands. Uh, they live in the Middle East uh, and points beyond. The vast majority uh, of those Catholics are non-white. The vast majority of those Catholics are uh, members of ethnic, linguistic, uh, socioeconomic minority groups. Many of them live in very dangerous neighborhoods. In other words, their life circumstances are vastly different than those Catholics in Europe and North America who for the last several centuries have dominated Catholic conversation. Now, we can analyze uh, the history of the Catholic Church from the Second Vatican Council really through the papacy of Benedict XVI as a kind of first world debate uh, over the legacy of the Second Vatican Council. Basically, under John XXIII and Paul XXVI, the answer to the question, does Vatican II mark a significant watershed, a turning point, almost a revolution in the life of the church? The answer that was given was yes. Uh, now, under John Paul II and Benedict XVI, the answer that was given was, well, yes, but not quite in the sense that you understood. Uh, in other words, there was a kind of uh, a trimming of the sails, a kind of course correction. Uh, if you like, to clarify what Vatican II meant and what it didn't. But all of that was framed largely in first world terms. It was basically a debate over power. How much power should the Pope have relative to, say, the bishops? How much power should the bishops have relative to, say, the laity? Uh, should women be admitted to the priesthood? Because that is uh, the gateway to power uh, in the Catholic Church. Uh, on sexual morality, do the bishops, does the hierarchy have too much power? Uh, in dictating uh, decisions in conscience made by individual lay Catholics. If you notice, the common term in all of this is power because power is the coin of the realm uh, in basically Western political theory, has been ever since the French Revolution. Uh, now, in much of the rest of the world, certainly in Latin America, the legacy of the Second Vatican Council was to some extent different. It wasn't that they were indifferent to questions of power. Uh, but their analysis was much broader. It wasn't about moving the levers of power inside the church. Uh, it was about power in the wider world and how the poor uh, are marginalized, disenfranchised, disempowered <clears throat> by global systems that have grown up since really the capitalist revolution. 
and the need for the Catholic Church to act as a leaven uh, in all of that. In other words, the Latin American interpretation of Vatican II could be described as the dream of a poor church for the poor. And of course, that was the Magna Carta soundbite that the new Pope, Pope Francis, delivered just days after his election in March 2013. It has run like a leitmotif through his papacy ever since. So look, you know, in, in the West, in Europe, in North America, we often get hung up uh, in the left v. right dimension of the Francis papacy. And the perception is that liberals are winning most of the fights, conservatives are losing most of them. There's a degree of truth to that, of course. Uh, but I think from a historical point of view, what we are actually witnessing is not so much a victory of left v. right. We are watching a victory of up or of down over up. That is, the, the two-thirds world, those who have historically been excluded from these conversations or at the very best marginalized in them, all of a sudden setting the terms of debate. This is deeply unsettling for many of us in the West, no matter where we find ourselves on the Western ideological spectrum. Uh, and yet, uh, if being Catholic means anything, uh, it, being, it means being a member of a global family of faith. Western Catholics have been able to hold that reality at arm's length for a long time, uh, because at least at the leadership levels and in terms of who writes journal articles and who gives talks uh, and so on, uh, it was still our perspectives, our voices that dominated. In the Pope Francis era, that is quite simply no longer the case. And uh, I guess the, the only summary uh, wisdom I can offer uh, my fellow Catholics in North America, in Europe, uh, is get used to it. Buckle in, uh, because this is the future of the Catholic Church. The next Pope may not be ideologically liberal, uh, but he's also not going to be culturally first world, probably. Uh, and, and therefore, the terms of reference, the conversations, the priorities are still going to require some stretching, some adjustment. That, after all, is what being Catholic means. Uh, and then the second summary point about the Francis Papacy at the eight-year mark I think we might be able to make is this. <coughs> Providence. God seems to have a habit. Uh, of supplying popes who provide a kind of, I don't know, sense of balance, a kind of needed cultural counterweight uh, at a given moment in time. I mean, think about the early 19th century, the birth of modern capitalism, when it seemed that the victory of the invisible hand of the market uh, was preordained, uh, and in which robber, bar robber baron capitalism uh, was the path of the future. At that time, God gave the church uh, Leo XIII uh, and the birth of modern Catholic social theory, uh, which provided uh, a kind of alternative, unexplored, unexploited, uh, in some cases ignored, but nevertheless it was there uh, as an alternative to the dominant cultural winds of the moment. Well, the dominant culture, cultural winds of our moment, at least as measured by political life, tend to be uh, a kind of reaction against globalism, right? I mean, it's a kind of growing sense of nationalism, a growing sense of closure, a growing sense of hostility 
to the other, uh, a, a kind of xenophobic populism that we see taking shape and, and in some cases seizing the levers of power uh, in Europe, uh, in North America, uh, in the Philippines, uh, in Asia, in Brazil, in Latin America, and in parts of Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, and so on. Uh, and uh, in many ways, it is the dominant political force of the day. And into that matrix, into that cultural milieu, uh, God saw fit to give us Pope Francis. Uh, and Pope Francis clearly uh, is, has been for the last eight years trying to articulate an alternative vision uh, of political and social life. One not premised on national rivalries, but on human fraternity and solidarity. One not premised on closure, but on welcome. One not premised on the survival of the fittest, but on a preferential love for the underdog and the excluded. Now, has the Pope articulated that vision perfectly? Are there arguments to be had around the edges uh, about particular policy prescriptions or ways in which this has been put into practice? I mean, do you have to buy every jot and tittle of every message that Pope Francis has dispatched to the World Assembly of Popular Meetings, for instance? No, certainly not. Uh, just as every aspect of every encyclical of Leo XIII has not survived historical scrutiny. That said, there is no question <clears throat> that in the global mix today, as we are looking uh, at who stands for what, that Pope Francis, over this eight-year span, has been the primary point of reference, the, the chaplain, if you will, the moral captain of an alternative vision of society and of human destiny, uh, one that has bucked the cultural and political tide. Uh, and in that sense, if Catholicism is ultimately about finding the happy mean between two extremes, you know, as St. Thomas Aquinas memorably said, that virtue always stands in the middle then even if Pope Francis has been at times a bit extreme in one direction or another, even if that ends up being the judgment of history, perhaps it was that extreme as a counterweight to another extreme that has given humanity some hope, some chance, some prospect of finding that happy virtue in the middle. Pope Francis, at the eight-year mark, on your anniversary, ad multos anos, many, many happy years to come. That is our show for this week. Thank you for joining us. I want to remind you of a couple things. First, you can find full coverage of everything we've talked about here on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. We are your one-stop shopping destination for the best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We're in the middle of our online fund line, fundraising drive. If you are so inclined, please go on the site, dig deep, help us out as best you can. Our independence is a precious commodity, but it doesn't come cheap. We need your help to maintain it. Secondly, if you like what you're seeing here on Last Week in the Church, if you appreciate this video offering, please give us a like, 
Give us a share. Go on your social media platform of choice and spread the news. Go forth and make disciples of all the nations. We want to get this product in front of as many eyeballs as we possibly can. So do help us out. We will see you next Friday at this time, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.